From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, an annual campaign to raise awareness and encourage people to get screened for this deadly but mostly preventable form of cancer. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services believes if everyone age 50 and older were screened regularly, six out of ten deaths from colorectal cancer could be prevented. On today's program, we'll discuss colorectal cancer with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll learn about surgical options that can be used to treat sleep apnea. And we'll hear how a new FDA approval clears the way for Mayo Clinic to accelerate production of stem cells for clinical trials. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, of the cancers that affect both men and women, cancer of the colon and rectum is the second leading cause of cancer death in the U.S. Now, that's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But there is some good news. Colorectal cancer is also one of the most preventable cancers, if people get the recommended screening. Now, most cases of colon cancer begin as a small, non-cancerous, benign clump of cells called a polyp. But over time, unfortunately, some of these polyps turn into colon cancer. Because these polyps may be small and produce few, if any, symptoms, doctors recommend regular screening tests to help prevent colon cancer by identifying and removing polyps before they can become cancerous. March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, and here to discuss colorectal cancer is gastroenterologist Dr. John Kissel. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kissel. It's nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you, too. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Kissel, great to have you on the program. Great to meet you. We want to talk about colon cancer because this is the month we're supposed to talk about it. (laughs) That's why we have it. All right. And the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States, and uh, if I'm correct, if you don't smoke, it's the cancer that's most likely to kill you. That's in fact correct. So lung cancer is still number one, uh, but that incidence of that cancer is slowly decreasing as fewer people are smoking. Is it also fair to say that it's one of the most easily prevented? Yes. So colorectal cancer has often been called the most preventable but least prevented cancer due to the fact that probably only 50 to 65 percent of people participate in screening programs. And that's far less than uh, there are people who participate in some of the other screenable cancers at the population level. Uh, We think probably 75 to 85 percent of women comply with mammography for breast cancer prevention and uh, pap smears for cervical cancer prevention. So we have a long way to go with colorectal still. Fairly common cancer. Do, Do we have any idea, do we know what causes it? Well, we know it affects about 1 in 20 in the general population, and then we know that there are modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors that will probably alter that risk. We know that diets that are high in red meat or saturated fat, carrying around excess weight, smoking, those are modifiable risk factors. That alcohol. We could, alcohol does also play a role. Now, these are relatively minor. I don't mean to dismiss them, but they probably will modulate risk by about 20 to 30%. There are other factors that we can't modify, like our family history and our age uh, and our sex. So it's more common in men. Uh, It's more common if you have first-degree relatives with colon cancer, and it's more common as we get older. Does everybody get polyps? 
We think that just about everyone will have a polyp before it turns into cancer. There are certain individuals with high-risk genetic syndromes in whom the polyps grow so quickly Mm -hmm. that we go in and we just find the cancer. But that probably applies to just a small minority of patients who are at risk, maybe 5% of people or less. Age is the most important risk factor. It's uncommon to see colon cancer in younger individuals, but you do. Yeah, unfortunately, there's there's new data that's coming out uh, that says that, you know, while we knew that maybe about 10% of people who get colon cancer are under the age of 50, uh, there's some new population-level data that was just released late last year that shows that maybe that incidence rate is starting to slowly creep up among individuals aged 40 to 50. And it's changing the way we're looking at screening, but thus far there have been no formal guidelines that have suggested that we lower the average risk screening bar to 40 years of age. That may be done in certain uh, individualized circumstances that would be discussed between a patient and their doctor. Because right now it's when you turn 50 is when you should have your first colonoscopy. Yeah, by and large. For the average risk general population, it's age 50 and up. What about symptoms? If you do have colon cancer and it isn't detected early or isn't detected on, on some kind of test, what symptoms might you have? Well, that's the really unfortunate part. So once symptoms develop, A, they can be nonspecific, and B, they can often indicate advanced stage disease. So if you're starting to have problems like a change in bowel habits, if you're noticing anemia, blood rectum, unintentional weight loss, abdominal pain, all of those should certainly be investigated. And the minority of the time would any of those actually herald a cancer. But if you have a cancer that presents with symptoms, it's usually going to be at advanced stage and harder to treat uh, or even not curable. And that's why we really emphasize that people come in for a preventative screening exam when they're feeling well. I don't want to go back to polyps again because I think uh, lots of times the fear that comes with this, you know, people don't want to go in for a screening. So I kind of want to help people that are maybe a little nervous about this. How often is that suspicious looking polyp really trouble? Yeah, that's a great question. When we do colonoscopy, we are expected to try to find a polyp at least one in four times that we do an exam. We should find a precancer if we're looking hard enough. That's a, a, an across the board minimum uh, industry standard. Uh, when we do find polyps, we try to remove them uh, almost all the time so that we can have one of our pathology colleagues do a detailed examination under the microscope and tell us whether it's a precancer or not. And if it is a precancer, we look for certain types of features under the microscope that might give us a sense of how quickly it might grow, and that gives us a sense of what to anticipate for that individual in the future. Would we bring them back in five to ten years? Would we bring them back in three years? Would we bring them back next year based on what we found? You mentioned that people who have symptoms often come in with later stage disease. Help our audience understand what you mean by stage. That's a great question. So when you get a diagnosis of colon cancer, your likelihood of cure is directly proportional uh, to several factors about the tumor, including its size, whether or not it has grown into any structures that are next to the colon, whether or not it has grown into lymph nodes, and whether or not it has spread to other organs. If it's grown into lymph nodes, patients would get chemotherapy after surgery because that's a tumor that has a very high likelihood of recurring or coming back. If it's spread into distant organs, those uh, tumors may not be curable. They can in some instances, so it's good to consult an expert center in the treatment of colon cancer if you're diagnosed. But many patients that have tumors that have spread outside of the colon uh, may receive medicine in order to try to prolong survival, but they may not be curable at that stage, unfortunately. Where does it most often spread to? Which organ does it go to first? Um, Blood, 
from the gut preferentially goes to the liver, uh, and that's from all portions of the intestine, including the colon. And blood from the liver then flows into the lungs uh, as part of the, the uh, reoxygenation of blood. And so when patients present with metastatic disease or disease that has spread to organs outside the colon, we find it in the liver and the lung. Mm. If that spread is relatively contained, only involving a small portion of the liver or a small portion of the lung, sometimes those patients can receive chemotherapy and receive surgery with the intent of trying to cure them. All right, you mentioned a couple of options for treatment. One, chemotherapy for patients who have had spread of the disease elsewhere. Uh, you mentioned surgery. I assume that the best thing to do is to be able to cut it out if you can. Um, any other treatment options? Well, uh, actually, depending uh, on where the tumor is located and if it's a very, very early stage tumor, sometimes we actually remove them with endoscopic uh, tools like a, col a colonoscope. Uh, and sometimes our surgeons can do um, a, a minimally invasive surgery, if, especially for low-stage rectal cancers. They can actually remove just the tumor without cutting out any bowel. Those are um, very uh, specific uh, situations and, and under certain sets of circumstances that those minimally invasive approaches can be used. But if a cancer is found, the majority of the time surgery will be required. One question we often get from patients who are diagnosed is, will I need an ostomy or a stoma bag? And that actually would only apply to the minority of patients. So fear of a stoma should not be a deterrent to getting screened, going back to that point you made earlier of people being afraid of what might be found. Radiation ever play a role? Absolutely. So primarily for rectal cancers, uh, because the rectum is encased in other important structures down in the pelvis, uh, radiation is frequently applied to rectal cancers uh, before surgery in order to try to control uh, local spread of disease and get the best surgical outcomes. We're talking about uh, cancer of the colon during Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month with gastroenterologist Dr. John Kissel. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about screening recommendations plus prevention of colon cancer. And we've got a myth or matter of fact. That's right. I sure do. If I don't have any symptoms, I don't need to get screened. Is that a myth or a fact? We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking about colorectal cancer with an expert from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. John Kissel. So, Dr. Kissel, we got a myth or matter of fact. Tracy wants to know. If I don't have any symptoms, I don't need to get screened. Is that a myth or a fact? That is the central myth <laughs> behind colorectal cancer prevention. So we really want to try to uh, perform screening and preventative services in patients who do not have any symptoms. Symptoms are bad. Let's say that you're a talk show host of a, a medical show, and you're <laughs> going to be turning 50 this year, and it's time to get screened. I'm just saying it might be happening to someone I know. <laughs> Is the first thing that I'm going to do go and get a go in and have the colonoscopy, or is there other options for me? I know. I think that's the first thing you ought to do. <laughs> the prep is what I'm understanding to worry about. But let's. I need to hear it from the horse's mouth over here. Yeah. So as someone who performs colonoscopy, uh, I would say that that is a very good screening option. But at this point in time, we do have a variety of different tests that people can choose from. And there are relative strengths and, and weaknesses of each of those tests that probably deserve uh, some form of interactive discussion uh, with your doctor as, as a hypothetical uh, potential patient. Excellent. All right. So I think you should have the colonoscopy. But tell us about the other options. 
the other options probably in order of discovery would include the flexible sigmoidoscopy, which is sometimes combined with a stool test for uh, invisible blood or occult blood, uh, or sometimes combined with an x-ray. That is a pretty good test for finding polyps and possibly cancers on the left side of the colon, but it really does not look at the whole organ. So why would you do that instead of the, the whole shot? Well, if you find a polyp on the left side of the colon, then a patient would be referred for a full colonoscopy. But there are uh, people who've argued that uh, the flexible sigmoidoscopy, because it only looks at half the colon, uh, is potentially, a, a, that's the major drawback of the test. Um, not to be be crude, but people have compared it to mammography of the left breast alone, for instance. Mm. We know now that probably half of the polyps and half of the cancers occur on the right side of the colon. Sure. So you should probably look at the whole thing. Uh, tests that can do that, another one is CT colonography, and I think that that's a relatively sensitive test for polyps and cancer. Uh, it's often, unfortunately, not covered. Uh, it's not yet covered by Medicare, but it is available to some select patient populations. Uh, it's available for Mayo patients. Do you still have to do the PrEP? You still have to do the PrEP. And see in order prep. to see, yeah, in order to see the polyps and the cancer, they also have to put a balloon in the patient's rectum and inflate the colon with air in order to take good quality pictures. But that's an important point: is that the prep is required. We're joking, but the prep is the part that everyone says is the worst part of it. I hear that mm-hmm. many times in a given day. Is there any yeah. research being done to improve the prep part of a colonoscopy? There are um, there are new prep options which are better tolerated, but there are two other options for screening that don't require prep at all. The oldest of those uh, would be a test for occult or invisible blood, and that's a test that is applied uh, in a patient's own home. Uh, They provide their own sample and send it in. Mm -hmm. That test has to be done every single year in order to be effective. Uh, But there is good data uh, that shows that that test will lower the mortality rate from colorectal cancer, but to a modest degree, maybe about 15% compared to not getting screened at all. Okay. I haven't heard you mention Cologuard. Well, the newest option <laughs> uh, on cue is... I'm, I'm trying uh, to save you here, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, the, the multi-target uh, stool DNA test, uh, which was co-developed here at Mayo, is another prepless option that uses a, uh, a stool uh, blood marker, uh, hemoglobin, but it also uses several DNA markers that are found in colon polyps and colon cancers, and those are assayed from uh, the stool by a, a single uh, central clinical laboratory. Uh, to get that test done, a patient's doctor uh, needs to register with that laboratory. Uh, they issue a prescription for the test. It's sent to the patient. The patient doesn't have to do any prep or skip any medications. They provide a single sample. Uh, it's picked up by a commercial uh, carrier and brought to that central lab, and then the doctor will receive a result, positive or negative. Uh, patients who are positive will then require a diagnostic colonoscopy to evaluate that test result. Is it good test? And, and who is it for? So this is for average risk uh, patients. So this is not yet approved for patients who are known to have overwhelming family history or genetic syndromes that predispose to colon cancer. We don't use it in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, I think it's a good test, but I have to uh, caution you that uh, I have a conflict of interest with the test being part of the investigative team here at Mayo uh, that helped develop it. There is some evidence that it is just as good as colonoscopy for detecting colon cancer. True? Yeah, for colon cancer, uh, the sensitivity of the multi-target stool DNA test, a.k.a. Cologuard, 
uh, is 94% for stage one and stage two cancer. Those are the ones that we want to catch uh, in comparison to colonoscopy. Stage one and stage two means localized or just barely spread outside the colon? Curable stage. All right. I guess we need to talk about prevention because uh, it's, a, it's a common condition. You said, what, one of every 20 adults is going to get cancer of the colon and or rectum. If there is anything you can do to avoid that, obviously we'd want to do it. What's your advice there? Yeah, I think um, screening is the number one step, and I'd say the remainder of measures probably boil down to common sense things that your mom told you when you were very little. Um, don't smoke. Don't drink to excess. Probably eat a balanced and healthy diet where you're getting uh, liberal quantities of uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, probably avoiding heavily saturated uh, forms of fat in the diet, uh, potentially from animal sources. Exercise regularly and then see your doctor uh, for regular preventative services uh, comprehensively, not just for colon cancer. Did I hear you say that too much red meat can cause colon cancer or is a risk factor for colon cancer? Well, we've worried about whether or not too much red meat is a risk factor, but that's very difficult to study. So we know that diets that are high in saturated fat may be associated with the risk. Sometimes people who like to eat a lot of uh, red meat or saturated fat might have other high-risk behaviors like smoking or drinking. So they're very, very difficult to study those factors in isolation. What about aspirin? There, I've seen some stories that suggest that taking aspirin can help prevent colon cancer. Yeah, we think it can, and we advise that and other chemopreventative strategies that would be medicines taken specifically to prevent the disease uh, in the patients that are at the highest risk of developing it. So we advocate the use of those preventative medicines in people who are at higher than average risk, but that's not yet fully endorsed for the general population. Where is the future going? What is the research? Yeah, I think where the future is really going is uh, looking at being able to screen for multiple cancers at once. That's something that our research program is working on here, and we now know that there are competing uh, universities and industry groups around the country that are interested in the same question. So uh, with a stool test or a blood test, could we start screening for cancers that we don't have uh, population-level uh, screening services for now? Things like pancreatic cancer, gastric cancer, esophagus cancer, uh, those are things that we can't really look for because they're in the center of our body and they're difficult to reach with scopes. It's a disease that you need to get screened for because if you do and you catch it early, it's a curable disease, one of the most preventable out there. Absolutely. We're talking about cancer of the colon and rectum. It is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Dr. Kissel, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about craniofacial surgery for sleep apnea. And later on in the show, we'll hear about an exciting advance in producing stem cells for clinical trials. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The use of e-cigarettes or vaping by teens is rapidly on the rise. There's been nearly a 50% increase in just four years, and health officials believe it's creating more tobacco smokers. Dr. Taylor Hayes, director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependent Center, says while data is limited, it's pretty clear that it looks like vaping is a gateway for youth smoking. Dr. Hayes says teens who have never smoked a cigarette are three to four times more likely to start smoking in the future if they use e-cigarettes. He also says kids who start vaping using e-cigarettes are more likely to use combustible tobacco cigarettes later. 
Dr. Hayes says he's concerned that vaping appears to be reversing a long-term trend of declining teen tobacco use. He says six to seven million people from around the world die every year from smoking, and if the current trends of smoking prevalence continue across the world, we'll reach one billion smoking-related deaths in this century. In other news, genetic mutations linked to heart disease have been considered a leading cause of sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. But a new study by Mayo Clinic, British and Danish researchers finds they are to blame for far fewer SIDS deaths than once thought. The findings are opening new lines of study into possible causes of the syndrome and may help prevent unnecessary genetic testing of family members. The study results appear in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Now, the research found that heart disease-associated genetic mutations account for roughly 5% of SIDS deaths. Dr. Michael Ackerman says it's now clear that most SIDS cases are not due to a single genetic cause. SIDS is the sudden, unexpected death of an infant under one. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Obstructive sleep apnea, also known as OSA, it's a serious and even life-threatening condition. And the risks of untreated sleep apnea include heart attack, stroke, irregular heartbeat, and high blood pressure. None of those are good. The National Sleep Foundation estimates that 18 million adults have sleep apnea, and it probably affects 2 to 3% of children as well. Kids snoring is so cute, though, isn't it? I know, but Mm. I didn't know they had sleep apnea. (laughs) (laughs) When first-line options for treatment, wearing a CPAP machine or an oral appliance, are ineffective, surgery to treat obstructive sleep apnea might be a possibility. Here to discuss surgical options for sleep apnea is Division Chair of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Biazzi. Did I say that right, Dr. Biazzi? Absolutely. Okay, Thank good. You. Did, you, did you say maxillofacial right? Maxillofacial. Maxillofacial. <laughs> You're two for two. Okay, maxillofacial. Good. <laughs> Dr. Biazzi, nice to have you on the program. Thanks for having me back. So tell us about this problem, sleep apnea. It seems like we hear about it all the time. It's very much in the lay press right now. It's huge. Uh, and you talked about 18 million people, that's probably a very low estimate. Really? Today, I mean, with the increase in obesity rates uh, in, in this country, it's it's thought that it may be as high as 30 million, maybe one in 10. Uh, so the prevalence has gone up dramatically uh, over the last uh, 15 to 20 years in particular. Before we get to surgery, though, there are other things that people can try before surgery is the next option. What are some of those quickly? And you probably know lots of people that are on CPAP. The breathing machine. Um, and for most folks, it, it works well, and it is the gold standard treatment, and it should be. Uh, but there are other non-surgical options, things like position therapy, where you put a tennis ball in your, in your shirt and so you don't lay on your back. Um, a, a dentist can make uh, an appliance, for instance. You talked about that earlier. There are even some medical management medications that can be used in, to treat this disease under the supervision of a sleep doctor. Let's go back a second. What, what actually is this? What happens? What's wrong? Well, for whatever reason, either a structural problem of the airway from a lack of proper bony development or perhaps a, a, an excess of soft tissue or fat, the airway uh, at night will collapse. So when you're particularly lying on your back and you, uh, you're relaxed and you're sleeping well, unfortunately, your tongue and your soft palatal tissues can 
uh, go backwards and obstruct the airway. So it's uh, an obstruction of the airway. Something is blocking the airway so you're not breathing properly when you're sleeping. Yeah, and this can happen, you know, a hundred times an hour for some patients with severe disease. And when you stop breathing like that, all kinds of bad things happen. You talked about blood pressure issues. You can have heart disease, rhythm disturbances, strokes, all kinds of problems. So you try those options to get rid of sleep apnea or at least to lessen its severity. Uh, surgery is then where you get, uh, it gets bad enough that you need surgery. Yeah, a small percentage of patients will cross over into what we call surgical treatment. Most people are well served to not have surgery and we want to avoid those kinds of things because they're, they're risky. All surgery carries risk. And let's talk about uh, some of the options. And are these patients that have virtually all tried some form of medical management that failed? They actually have to, uh, and from a variety of perspectives. Uh, no surgeon should be operating on patients who, unless they've failed medical management, number one. And today the insurance companies are very careful about making sure that people have had a good, robust trial of non-surgical therapy before you go on into surgical care. So if they fail, let's uh, CPAP. Then the, they're sent to you? Well, they're sent to somebody. Oftentimes a, an ENT physician and an oral, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon are probably the two most common uh, providers that are, are seeing these patients for consideration of surgery. Uh, here at Mayo Clinic, for instance, oftentimes both, both groups will see. Um, our ENT physicians frequently will do soft tissue surgeries. Um, in our specialty, we tend to do bony surgeries. And it all depends on where the problem is and what the structural abnormality really is. So we try to give it a sort of a, a specific approach to each patient based on their own unique anatomy. You said soft tissue versus bone. Explain the difference there. Well, in some patients, they may have very normal facial bony growth and development. And the problem is that there's an excess of soft tissues. Either they're heavy or perhaps not, but for whatever reason, the bones are normal, but the soft tissues cause collapse. There's another set of patients. Too much stuff in there. Too much Blocks stuff the in there. Yeah. Yeah. Too, and, and obesity is, and obesity, is a big that's, issue. That's, yeah. that's typically the issue I mean, with obese if you patients. Have, if you're obese, you're obese everywhere. Right, exactly, okay. including in the pharyngeal uh, airway space. That's the throat. Exactly. Uh, the other side of the coin is the person who has some for form of bony abnormality in terms of facial growth and development. And in that case, the soft tissues may be very normal, but they're not in a normal location. And so that's what tends to lead to collapse. And that's where bony surgery can put those tissues into a better position and prevent obstruction at night. Bony surgery? Bony surgery. <laughs> it just doesn't sound Tell good. us what you do there, gently. Again, there's a lot of different procedures that can be uh, uh, used. There are many operations that are done for, for people. Some of you, your, your listeners may know somebody who had a, an underbite or an overbite or a J. Leno kind of chin. And those kinds of operations are often done to correct bite problems or facial skeletal deformities. And, and similar things can be done to treat sleep apnea by moving those bones forward and therefore pulling those soft tissues up and out of the airway. How successful is a surgery like that? It's, it's actually very successful. The, the surgery to move the facial bones forward has about a 90% cure rate, hmm. which is actually a lot higher than the soft tissue operations uh, in general. But there are all kinds of new things coming all the time. There's another procedure out right now called hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Hypoglossal nerve stimulation is a procedure where you... Um, uh, implant a, uh, a stimulator, much like a pacemaker, that causes the tongue to be protruded just a small amount at night each time you take a breath in. Mm -hmm. And so that relieves some of the soft tissue obstruction and can be a better option for people who have a soft tissue problem 
rather than a bony problem. So that's another surgical uh, option that's out there for some folks. Can you briefly describe for us how you move part of the face forward? It's a very careful process, uh, Dr. Shives. <laughs> we, uh, some people will say, well, you're going to break my jaws and move them forward. There's no breaking. There's a lot of controlled cutting of bones and, and making careful cuts in the bone and moving <laughs> things forward and then holding things together with little tiny plates and screws until your body can heal things. All right, that's enough. That's enough. That's good for me. (laughs) Controlled cutting, controlled cutting. What uh, is the distraction that you were talking about when we got going? Explain that to me. Distraction osteogenesis is a big fancy term, and what it means is that you grow bone by slowly lengthening a cut in the bone. It actually was developed by orthopedic surgeons in Russia, as a matter of fact. Elizarov was the guy. That's not surprising, is it? Yes, not at all. (laughs) And I thought we'd want to give a shout-out to orthopedics. Always. Thank you. Uh, But in any event, this was uh, developed initially for lengthening uh, long bones, uh, legs, arms, I believe, in congenital short stature patients. And we use it in the facial region now quite a bit, particularly in our cleft lip and palate kids. And it can also be used in sleep patients sometimes. Finally, it, this is the 100th anniversary of the <coughs> Dental and Oral Surgery Program uh, Division at Mayo Clinic. It is. Exciting. It is exciting. Um, we have a tremendously long history here in dentistry and in oral surgery, partnering with our physician colleagues. The Mayo brothers knew that there was a connection between oral disease and systemic disease. They were pioneers in that area. And we've been privileged to participate in the care of patients uh, here with our medical colleagues since that time. So it's very exciting, and it's such a great place to be for that evolution to occur. All right, congratulations on the first 100 years. We've been talking about surgery for sleep apnea with the Division Chair of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Christopher Viazzi. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, my pleasure. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll hear about a new FDA approval for increased stem cell production to help with clinical trials. Want to hear and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out the more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Recently, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, approved a new method of stem cell production at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. It's an automated system that's capable of producing billions of stem cells in a short amount of time. Now, it took more than four years to develop the process, and the FDA was there every step of the way. This advanced method will increase the production of clinical-grade stem cells at the Florida campus, and that will establish the Florida campus among the first automated stem cell manufacturing sites in the U.S. Wow. Big deal. And that is a giant leap in the field of regenerative medicine. Regenerative medicine is a game-changing area of medicine with the potential to heal damaged tissues and organs. It has the potential to provide solutions and hope for people who have conditions that today are beyond repair. Stem cells are currently being studied as treatment for a whole host of medical problems. And joining us on phone from Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, to discuss stem cell production is the Associate Director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine, Dr. Gujan Bu. Welcome, Dr. Bu, to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dr. Bu, thanks so much. So stem cells and more stem cells, it sounds like. Why, Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because we all know that uh, stem cell can help the body to heal and help to kind of reduce the suffering of many patients, especially 
complex conditions that we have little current medical treatment. And um, the, the problem in the past is that you didn't have enough of them. Correct. So if we, we traditionally produce these cells in the uh, laboratory culture setting, roll them on monolayer, you can produce maybe a few million cells, but that's not enough to treat the patient. Now with this automated system, we can produce billions of cells and not only be able to treat patients, but multiple patients at the same time. And what, what will you use them for? Well, it, it, uh, we have several uh, current trials and proposed trials, and these trials are different stages. So some of them are, you know, for example, uh, treat condition after following a long transplant. Uh, you know, the body has tendency to reject them. These stem cells can modulate the immune system or calm down the immune system to reduce that tendency. There are several other conditions, including inflammatory bowel disease, um, some of the uh, uh, chronic obstructive uh, pulmonary disease, and so on. So you're talking about stem cells. Are there different kinds of stem cells, or do you give the same kind of stem cells to somebody who has uh, to modulate the inflammatory response uh, the same as you would someone who has inflammatory bowel disease? Well, uh, there's basically two types of stem cells. Stem cells come from the patient themselves. Those are called autologous. So these you can derive from the bone marrow or the uh, fat tissue. The kind we manufacture, develop process to produce are so-called so allogen. And these are come from young, healthy donors. And uh, once we manufacture them, they can give it to a different patient. And how did you used to do this? Okay, so we used to uh, culture these uh, these uh, so-called culture flask in the cell uh, cell culture lab, and that's a manual process and labor intensive. It's slow. It's low yield. Uh, now it's an automated machine. And uh, how did you develop? Was this developed at uh, Mayo Clinic Jacksonville? This machine? No, this machine is uh, come from a, a commercial entity. But you, uh, how, how is it that you're now able to use it at, at Mayo Clinic Jacksonville? So we uh, have this machine in the setting of what we call the human cell therapy lab. And that lab is headed by Dr. Abba Zubair. Um, and within this uh, facility, which is called the GMP facility, referring to good manufacturing practice facility, in this facility we control the environment uh, control the uh, the sterile conditions and so on. And FDA goes through this process to ensure that the way we manufacturing this are uh, making safe products that, uh, that we use to deliver to patients. So you can get the stem cells from a donor, correct? Correct. And then you have a way of multiplying those stem cells. So you get a million stem cells and you can turn it into a billion. Exactly. And uh, who are the donors? So these are anonymous, uh, healthy donor. We have a way of uh, register uh, people who are interested, much like uh, how we identify donor for, for blood or for bone marrow uh, when a patient needs transplant. Is it painful to get uh, stem cells from someone? Uh, not really. This is standard um, bone marrow harvesting uh, steps, and uh, the technician are getting so good at this, you you hardly feel much and, and not much uh, uh, more painful or difficult than uh, donating blood. What what types of diseases or or conditions most like most likely or most often do you use stem cells for? 
Well, uh, much of these are injury or degenerative conditions. So, for example, one of the trials we uh, are going to get started soon is actually a condition called a hemorrhagic stroke, the stroke, the type of stroke that has bleeding. And these patients suffering not just the stroke damage to neuron, but also the secondary um, sort of events, which are inflammation in your body, which drive more damage. So the stem cell from the preclinical study have shown that, that they can neutralize some of these inflammatory responses, therefore reduce the secondary damages. But uh, at this point in time, you're not able to reverse the brain damage that was done by the stroke. Not yet, but that's, uh, we have uh, pipelines in the, uh, in particular in the preclinical lab. So we're testing this so-called regeneration or cell replacement, replacement therapy. So these cells can potentially use to treat neurodegenerative diseases, for example, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, to replace the lost neurons or other cell types in the brain. Uh, what about the heart? Uh, there's damage to the heart muscle when someone has a heart attack if it's not reversed right away, if the blood supply isn't restored right away. Are you anywhere close to being able to use stem cells to regenerate the muscle that was damaged? So that's also in the clinical trial stage. I think uh, Mayo Clinic uh, uh, Rochester has a trial going on. Several other centers have these trials. They're not ready for clinical application yet, but we're at the translation stage, so to say, meaning that these are going through clinical trial. These cells can be converted to uh, heart muscle cells to replace uh, those damaged cells. So now that you are able to um, bulk up the stem cell production that you can do for these trials, I would imagine that this has to be quite helpful when it comes to those clinical trials that you're working on. It's very helpful understanding that for each different type of disease or different trial, we need a separate approval from FDA. Uh, those are called IND, investigative, investigative New Drugs. So those have to go through the approval process. FDA will make sure that these cells deliver for to specific disease condition is safe before they will allow us to test it. All pretty exciting. A new method of stem cell production with uh, potential treatment for multiple medical problems. We've been talking with the Associate Director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine, Dr. Gujan Bu. Dr. Bu, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 